Hey everybody, Josh Sigurdsson of World Alternative Media here, and we recently heard the very sad news of the death of the brilliant Dr. Tim Ball. Dr. Tim Ball was a climatologist, and he did absolutely incredible work exposing the hoax of climate change for many years. He even advised President Trump at one point close to the end of his life. He had been going through a rough time the last couple of years. I've been trying to keep in touch with him. And unfortunately, he passed away on September the 24th of 2022. After a very long life, I might add, a long life of fighting for truth and freedom, of course, um, he was born all the way back in 1938. Well, we did an interview several years ago that aired December of, of the 3rd, 2018, um, called 97% Global Warming Consensus Exposed by Dr. Tim Ball. The video went extremely viral at the time, uh, half a million views or so. Um, the only issue is that YouTube, like many of Tim Ball's videos, uh, YouTube took it down and censored him. Well, I wanted to pay tribute to our friend, our late guest, Dr. Tim Ball, by re-showing this video from December of 2018 where he goes over his life, his work, and exposes the lies that are currently being used on a global scale to bring in the Great Reset. So I hope you enjoy this video. Hey everybody, Josh Sigurdsson, World Alternative Media here, and we are joined today by a brilliant man by the name of Dr. Tim Ball, PhD, a former professor in the Department of Geography at the University of Winnipeg, and one of the leading voices against the noise and propaganda of the anthropogenic global warming alarmism. Uh, thank you for joining us, sir. Well, thanks for the opportunity, and I think brilliance only comes from my shiny pate. <laughs> well, we've got some uh, very uh, interesting recent news to go into shortly with you. But um, since we have not had you on as of yet to talk about climate change, uh, can you explain to our viewers your journey to questioning the mainstream view of anthropogenic global warming or climate change? Sure. Um, I uh, was uh, in the Canadian Air Force and I flew anti-submarine uh, during the Cold War over the North Atlantic. And then I flew five years search and rescue out of Winnipeg in the Arctic and uh, lost my flying category because of a hearing loss. And by the way, I think here uh, noise pollution is something we need to talk about as a society. But anyway, I lost my flying category. Um, I decided to go back to university, which actually, as it turned out, is the only way to go to university when you've got some life experience and you've got an idea of who you are and what you want to do. But anyway, um, I decided to go back to university to find out why the weather forecasts were so wrong all the time. I mean, it, it, we used to have a, a basic um, a computer model where you fed in the wind and, and speed and direction, and, and then the dead reckoning computer model would uh, do your navigation for you. We found that uh, we were better to put in zero wind speed and direction because they were so wrong all the time. and. Um, I mean, we, we got into some very dangerous situations where they'd say, oh, no, it's clear skies, and we'd get freezing rain and get the uh, wings iced up and everything else. So I went back to university to find out why the forecasting was so bad. Um, I discovered that there was a guy in England by the name of Hubert Lamb who had experienced the same problem as, as a forecaster during the Second World War and the bomber uh, crews coming back and saying, your, your forecasting is killing us. Mm -hmm. And so he decided to, to look into the history of, of climate change and, of course, discovered that it changes dramatically all the time and far more than people realize. And so he set up the Climatic Research Unit at East Anglia, and I had the privilege of working with him there, but doing my doctorate through uh, University of London, England, uh, Dr. Bruce Atkinson, and um, I used the Hudson Bay Company archives, which, of course, are based in Winnipeg and one of the most remarkable archives in the world. But uh, they, um, as, as a good company, knew that the weather and the climate was very important to their survival. They lived off the land. Therefore, if there was a you know, lack of game, uh, they were going to starve to death. And then also there was variations in the uh, fur animals available to them. So from the very start, they kept daily weather journals uh, in which they recorded the weather in a very systematic way. 
this is a method that was set out for uh, mariners uh, for ship's logs. So it provided a very standardized procedure. And so what I did was I, I computer coded all of the, the weather entries into digital information and ended up with over 6 million bits of information. And I could then uh, look at the patterns of change over time. Like how, how many days did it rain in 1742, for example, and, and um, uh, that sort of uh, pattern. And of course, I found out what Lamed found out and what all people who start to look at uh, historic records, just how much uh, the climate varies. But more important, that what's going on now is well within natural variability. Mm -hmm. And when I started out, global cooling was the consensus. And by the way, the minute you hear the word consensus uh, related to science, there's something wrong. Science is not about consensus. Consensus is a giveaway that you're hearing somebody who's pushing a political agenda. Well, absolutely. And that's actually something I wanted to get into uh, with you next, because um, and, and for those that have ever been to Winnipeg, you might uh, realize that you have to be pretty rugged uh, to survive the temperatures in the winter way back when. So, uh, you know, a lot of research has to be put into that. Um, but let's talk about this 97 percent consensus. Uh, we've we've spoken about it before with Lord Moncton here, at WAM, and it simply does not add up. Um, um, can you debunk the so-called consensus for us once and for all? Yeah, well, there were two. Uh, well, first of all, I've debunked it in those comments I just made. Mm -hmm. And it's Michael Crichton who wrote Jurassic Park, who was a medical doctor with postdoctorate work at Oxford. And he said, if, it, if it's science, it isn't consensus. And if it's sci a consensus, it isn't science. And Einstein said, I can have 100 experiments prove me right. Only one experiment can prove me wrong. And, and uh, Moncton, of course, uh, did the famous analysis of the 97% uh, figure that came out of Queensland, Australia, from John Cook. And uh, Moncton showed how, in fact, uh, using Cook's own method, there was only 3% of scientists that agree. Um, the the, the uh, person prior to that that was pushing the consensus argument was a woman by the name of Naomi Oreski. O-R-E-S-K-E-S. -E and she produced an article saying that she had studied, I think it was 952 uh, articles, and all of them agreed that global warming due to humans was, was a fact. And that, that sh her data was quoted in Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth. What she did was, um, she, uh, what a lot of people now know, that the information you get from the internet is determined by the keywords that you Google or, or that you search. And um, so whenever I write an article, I always make sure that the keywords that I want to catch people's attentions are in the headline of the article. Mm -hmm. Well, um, when you just change by one word, her search, uh, you got completely different set of, of records. But as I said, that that uh, and her figure, and she actually did it at 95%. But that was the first consensus argument. She is a history historian of science, and she should know better have, if she understood what Galileo did. But she works at the Scripps Institute, uh, the Oceanographic Institute on the West Coast in California, and that has been the center of the whole deception of human-caused global warming, that particular agency. So that was the first uh, use of the consensus argument. The, the Cook one, which Moncton debunked, was the second one. And of course, um, uh, what I've argued, uh, and I, ha I, I haven't done analysis of this, but I would be, uh, it's more likely that 97% of scientists have never even looked at the science of climate change. And, and um, they simply assume that what other scientists say uh, uh, is correct and, and that other scientists wouldn't uh, cook the books or cheat on the data or use science for a political agenda. Mm. And I can read you, uh, read you a quick quote from that. This is from um, uh, Klaus Eckert Pulse, who was a, a meteorologist or is a meteorologist and physicist. And he said, 10 years ago, I simply parroted what the IPCC told us. One day, I started checking the facts and data. First, I started with a sense of doubt, but then I became outraged when I discovered that much of what the IPCC and the media were telling us was sheer nonsense and was not even supported by any scientific facts and measurements. 
To this day, I still feel shame that as a scientist, I made presentations of their science without first checking it. And that's, that's what's going on with the whole consensus argument. And of course, the one person that pushed it was Obama. Obama was the first world leader to use it. And his science advisor was John Holdren. And John Holdren were, wrote books back in the 70s with Paul Ehrlich and the, the population bomb. And that was at the center of this whole environmental and climate hysteria. Mm -hmm. So that, that's where it really took hold. Yeah, and even Lord Moncton will say that uh, while carbon does somewhat affect the climate, but to such a minimal extent that is, it's irrelevant to the narrative that's being pushed. And I, I find it interesting that we have in so many cases there you could say that for so many different types of or the scientific communities around the world on a main, mainstream scale is that you see a lot of. Uh, almost blackmailing, um, blacklisting, anyone goes against a quote-unquote consensus and they are given the title of a denier with all the Holocaust connotations, something that is really troubling when it comes to actually looking for answers. Uh, I mean, why, why is there such an alarming, um, uh, you know, mainstream attack on individuals who want to be skeptical and search for real answers rather than regurgitate what they're told. Well, that's what happens when you use uh, science for a political agenda. And that was at the center of, of the one of the, one of my uh, lawsuits uh, with, with Andrew Weaver. But uh, there's two things that people need to understand. One is that they need to understand how society changes its view on things. And, and um, it, it, it's, uh, it's, it, it occurs through, um, a ch a ch I'm trying to think of the term now, but I, I, anyway, I'll come to, it'll come to me in a minute. But, but you get, somebody comes forward with a new idea, a new way of looking at things. And we had two major ones, examples of that in the 20th century. The first was environmentalism. The second was uh, paradigm shifts. That's what I'm, I'm thinking about. You get a paradigm shift. The, f the two in the, the 20th century was, uh, first was the environmental uh, paradigm shift. And the second was feminism. Now, what happens with environmental uh, or paradigm shifts is an environmentalism, by the way, was a necessary shift in our way of, of looking at the world and dealing with the world. It makes no sense to, to, to pollute and soil your own nest. But what happens with all paradigm shifts throughout history, and it happened with feminism as with environmentalism, there's a small group of people who grab it and see that there is both financial and political advantage in controlling that new paradigm. And of course, we saw that with environmentalism and the small group, like people like Suzuki, grabbed it and they took the moral high ground and you saw them on TV and underneath their title, it said environmentalist. You say, well, who gave them that title? Where do you go to school for that? But what they were doing was saying, I'm, I care about the environment, you don't care. Now, um, the, the, uh, the, the point is, of course, then, that you uh, also, uh, with the global warming and climate thing, you, you present this argument uh, in, in using the scientific method. You say, I have a theory or I speculate, a hypothesis. And the speculation was that human CO2 is at being added to the atmosphere it causes temperature increase to, to occur, and therefore, if we don't stop doing it, there's going to be runaway global warming. It'll be the end of the Earth. But what happens in science, just as with a paradigm shift, scientists test the hypothesis. And that's why you laugh at the idea they called me, for example, a global warming skeptic. Well, all scientists are skeptics. If you're not a skeptic, you're not a scientist. Mm -hmm. But what they did was they blocked so they started attacking me. Oh, you're a climate warming skeptic. Not or knowing that the word skeptic for the public was different than its meaning for science. The public thinks skeptic as somebody who's, oh, you know, they don't believe anything and they're, they're conspiracy theorists and all the rest of it. And then uh, starting in about 2004, the, a very dramatic thing started to happen. The CO2 kept going up, but the temperatures started to level off. 
it began in 1998, but by 2004, and we know this from the leaked emails, that um, they they realized they had a PR problem on their hands because they were saying, oh yeah, it, you know, it's, it's, this cold weather is due to the warming. Well, that was so illogical that even the people that didn't understand. And so what they did was they stopped calling it global warming and started calling it climate change. And they stopped calling us global warming skeptics and call, started calling us climate change deniers, as you said, with all of the Holocaust connotations of that. But what happens is that when you uh, introduce a, a new uh, a paradigm shift or a new hypothesis, and then it, the people that are pushing it, it either holds up or it doesn't. In normal science, if it doesn't withstand the skepticism, uh, then you either modify your, your hypothesis or you throw it out completely. And, and, but what happened with the global warming one and with environmentalism was that as the evidence showed that they were wrong, uh, they doubled down. They had a choice. They could either say, yeah, okay, we got it wrong, or they could double down and become more extreme and more vicious in their attacks on people. And one of the reasons that I was such a target is not because I'm so smart or clever or got a shiny head or anything else. It's because they couldn't say I wasn't qualified, which, which by the way, notice nobody ever asked Gal Gore about that, <laughs> or, they, or I could explain the science in ways that the public could understand. And those were the two threatening talents that I had that brought me the three lawsuits that I had. And by the way, it's cost me $600,000 in legal bills so far. And that, that uh, it's not just the fact that you get the lawsuits, but the intimidation of that to other scientists to say, hey, you, you speak out, the same thing's gonna happen to you. Yeah. And they use the law for the completely opposite purpose for which it was designed. Now, what's, what we're going through now, and by the way, with feminism, for example, and, and, and the way that it works is that small group grab the idea, and the majority of people don't really know. that they, They're afraid of change, naturally, and the reason for that is because when change occurs, they know that somebody's going to win and somebody's going to lose, and you can't predict ahead of time who that's going to be. So people are very small c conservative about change. But uh, also, they're not, they're not quite sure how far to take this new idea. They can see the benefits of it, as we could see the benefits with environmentalism and feminism, but the majority of people are saying, well, how far do I go with this? Well, then, as they these extremists who grab the idea, as they start to lose control, they become more and more extreme. And in yeah. becoming extreme, they define the limits for the majority of people. And that's what we're in right now. Mm -hmm. So when they start to make these crazy environmental claims, or, or for example, with the feminism, you know, when they came out and said, oh, you got to burn your bras, and women said, oh, no, no, hang on a minute, <laughs> hang on a minute. I, I kind of I like the comfort of that. And, and so that, that defined the limits. And I'll give you an example of this. I talked to a grade 12 group in, in, in uh, Abbotsford a little while ago, and I walked into the class and I said, oh, you guys all care about the environment. You get the chanting and the pounding of the desks and so on. And I let them calm down and I said, okay, great. None of you will ever drive cars. <laughs> and the room went absolutely silent. Whoa. I said, oh, we've We've defined the limit of your environmentalism. Yeah, and I mean, Dr. Ball, this is um, what's interesting is that I, I find it hard for people to say that they are environmentalists while also supporting the government when the government is the world's biggest polluter. I mean, that's another issue entirely. I mean, you see a lot of people on the far left um, calling themselves environmentalists, and then they put their whole heart and soul behind the government, which is polluting the world at a faster rate than anything you can imagine. It's it's rather um, ironic, but I did want to get into a few uh, news stories with you. Yeah, Josh, just before you pass on, just one quick comment about that. Notice, and, and I did this at, at the, the commissions that I chaired, and I'd call them together, and I knew they would all talk about there's too much government, and then we'd sit down, and the first thing they did was have their hand out for the government per diem. And I said, you know, 
look, this is what all humans do. One minute we're saying, why doesn't the government do something about it? And the next minute we're saying, there's too much government. We've got to reduce government. And that's the contradiction that, that is part of what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it ends up being the problem, reaction, solution, repeat kind of scenario. Uh, Hegel once spoke of that. But um, exactly. uh, while, while there have been great exaggerations regarding the level of stratospheric aerosol geoengineering and conspiracy crowds over the years, it has certainly gone on to an extent, and now we are seeing a published study come out of uh, environmental research letters co-authored by Dr. Jernot Wagner from Harvard University's John A. Paulson School of Engineering and Applied Sciences. Uh, this study supports the notion of spraying sulfites into the stratosphere to reflect the sun and cool the earth. Uh, what many in conspiracy crowds would call uh, quote-unquote chemtrails. What are your thoughts on this idea to spray the skies? It sounds like something you know a supervillain would devise. Um, I, this is going to surprise you, but I'm going to jump back to Darwin, mm -hmm. and here's here's why. This is what you and you notice, by the way, that Darwin is still part of the debate. Uh, Richard Dawkins, God is dead, and all the rest of it. And you you have experience and students going to university. When Darwin was around, there were only two faculties at the university. There was the natural sciences, and there was the humanities. Today, the largest faculty in the universities are the social sciences which I called human navel-gazing. And the social sciences are all about trying to quantify and understand human behavior. Now, why did that come about? Well, because science, in trying to defeat religion, and I'm not promoting religion or, or either side of the, all I'm telling you is what happened historically, science decided to use Darwin to defeat religion. That worked. Now, Darwin would have agreed with it because he was an atheist, but he, he wasn't aware of what was going on. But once you get rid of, of religion, you get rid of God, which explains why humans are so different than all the other animals, and it, it, explain, and it ha is one explanation for the world that we see. And one person I want to I hope we get a chance to talk about is Alfred Russell Wallace who was publishing at the same time as Darwin and said, if you don't explain how humans are so different than all the other apes, your theory means nothing. And Darwin failed to do that. And by the way, Darwin didn't call himself a scientist. He was a naturalist. And, and so what happened is then you get rid of God as the explanation for us, our humans being here and doing what we're doing. Right, and you 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 see this in comments like people don't even think about it. But the Greenpeace report said CO2 is added to the atmosphere naturally and unnaturally. I say to them, well, what do you mean unnatural? Oh, well, that's humans. Oh, so you mean we're unnatural? Uh, think about what Goethe said, the great German philosopher. He said the unnatural that also is natural. But you see, there's a very deep deep anti-humanity in all of this environmentalism, extreme environmentalism, and so on. And so, so this is why that we're in this mess that we're in. And if you get rid of God, then you believe that you can, be, you can act as God. That's why we get into the geoengineering. Well, humans made this mess, therefore we're obliged to clean it up. And geoengineering, we've been trying to geoengineer since the dawn of time. Uh, 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 dance, rain dances uh, were, were, were geoengineering, attempting to control nature. And uh, back when I started, when, uh, when cooling was the consensus, and that was because the world cooled down from 1940 to 1980, they were proposing all sorts of geoengineering then. One of them was to block the Bering Straits and prevent cold water going into the North Pacific, which would then warm up the middle latitudes of the world and get rid of the warming. They were going to put huge, great uh, reflectors up in space to direct uh, sunlight into northern cities like Winnipeg. And one of the proposals at that time was that we've got to start adding CO2 to the atmosphere to offset the warming or the cooling. Well, if they'd have gone through with all of that, think of the mess we'd have been in. Now, they're proposing exactly the opposite. And this idea of um, putting sulfides up into the atmosphere, that's been around for some time. And in fact, uh, when their computer models were unable to explain why the global temperature went down from 1940 to 1980, 
They said, oh, we've solved the problem. Oh, well, how have you solved it? Well, humans produce sulfates, and we, we put that into our model. And as we added the sulfates, that brought the global temperature down, and that explains the cooling from 1940 to 1980. The problem was that after 1980, the global temperature started to go up, and the sulfates were continuing to increase didn't fit the pattern at all. Now, by the 1990s, of course, uh, Gore and all of these people had, had got the public so riled up about global warming, the government felt obliged to try to deal with it. So they were up spraying chemicals, silver iodide, and all of these other particles into the atmosphere, which, of course, then became identified as chemtrails. And most people couldn't tell the difference between a chemtrail and a contrail from the airplanes. And, and so the government quietly try to react but ended up making more of a mess. The bottom line of all of this is we don't know enough and understand enough to do anything. You're far better to do nothing and, and, and uh, try to um, adapt and accommodate which humans have been doing from, from the, our first appearance on the earth. Mm -hmm, absolutely. That's how nature progresses is just, you know, the natural fluctuation of things. And of course, even Al Gore himself went on television a few years ago and said that the idea of spraying the atmosphere, uh, the stratosphere sounds absolutely crazy. I mean, this is, uh, <laughs> like I said, it's like a supervillain devised it. And I know it's uh, made fun of a lot of, uh, you know, uh, anti-conspiracy crowds and stuff. But it, it is a real thing. You know, Environment Canada has been talking about it for a long time. It, I mean, it's exaggerated uh, to an extent by certain crowds, but it's definitely happening. Um, so okay. Yeah, but Josh, hang on a bit. You mentioned Environment Canada, mm -hmm. and I'll, I'll get into this a bit more later. But Morris Strong, who set up the IPCC as part of the Agenda 21, which is a world governance, okay, the, the, um, when they set up the IPCC, they gave them a definition of only looking at human causes of climate change. And you can't possibly do that unless you understand natural climate change. And the, the human portion is so small, you couldn't separate it out anyway. I mean, this is one of the, the, the uh, what's laughable about the whole CO2 issue. CO2 is only 4% of the greenhouse gases, and the human portion is is 0.2% of that 4%. And if everybody left the planet, and I mean, they, they took everybody off the planet and left one person behind, and that person's job was to measure the change in CO2 caused by getting rid of all the people off the planet, she would not be able to measure any difference in the level of CO2 in the atmosphere. That's how stupid this whole thing is. But uh, as I said, Al Gore and, and all these people got, in, got into this. They saw the political agenda. But you mentioned, uh, you mentioned Environment Canada. When Strong set this up, he did it through the World Meteorological Organization, which is made up of the weather offices of every country in the world. In other words, he set the whole scam up through the bureaucracy. And Environment Canada have been pushing the politicians and pushing this whole agenda this is the biggest deep state story and fake news story in the history of the world. And it was done deliberately through the bureaucrats who are unaccountable to anybody. And as Mary McCarthy said, uh, defining a bureau bureaucra bureaucracy, she said, bureaucracy is the rule of nobody. It's the modern form of despotism. And that's exactly what we've got going on right now. Absolutely. And, and weather is the most unpredictable thing on Earth. It makes up nature itself. Therefore, it's incredibly easy to scare people into being taxed more and more dependent on the government using this simple scare tactic. And every time there's a fire or an earthquake or a blizzard, it's blamed on climate change and the media propagandizes people to support new government policies. It's kind of like uh, certain Christian or Islamic groups blaming earthquakes on gay people. It's simply not rational. Um, so with the latest fires in California, we are seeing a new report come out of the National Climate Assessment, NCA, claiming we are all in dire danger of even an economic crisis by the year 2100, um, which uh, Trump has actually been blasted for shrugging off. Um, what are your thoughts on the continued fear-mongering and how they actually think that less centralization and less government intervention is going to lead to an economic crisis all the way in 2100. Okay, uh, first of all, that U.S. Uh, fourth uh, report uh, of, uh, on, on climate and environment was written by the people at NOAA 
and and uh, other government bureaucrats. And the people at NOAA, uh, that's the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, which is the American equivalent of Environment Canada. They uh, their forecasts of the two recent hurricanes, Florence and Michael, were absolutely wrong. So in, in a four-day period with a very extreme event, which they could monitor by satellite, they still got it wrong. They got the wind speeds wrong. They got the direction wrong. Uh, they got every bit of it wrong. Uh, and that uh, and of course, they're, they're claiming, that, oh, these are the most severe hurricanes ever. It's absolute rubbish. It was a hurricane in 1900 that uh, flooded uh, Galveston, Texas, and 12,000 people died, drowned. So, so NOAA are the people that can't, do the, can't even get the four-day forecast right, but they're the ones that were behind this report to the U.S. government because they're part of, as I said to you, this world agency. And... Um, so they took the IPCC report findings and they used them in their report to the U.S. government of, of all more severe weather, more storms, and so on. But they were a major author of that IPCC report. So in other words, they're quoting themselves. This is the incestuous nature of what's going on with this state, state, deep state issue. Now, take that and then look at the fact that fires are the most natural one of the most natural things on the planet. They are nature's way of getting dead material, dead debris, and, and allowing the whole process of entropy to, to go through. Um, fires, there are fewer fires in North America now than there were when Europeans arrived in, in, in the 16th century. And we know that because off the coast of California, for example, when you take sediment cores, you get the layers of sediment from the soil washing off the land, and then you get the layer of carbon that indicates uh, extensive forest fires on the land. There are fewer forest fires now because, yes, there are more people, and humans set more fires, but they also put out more fires. And also what's happened is that the uh, uh, Aboriginal people living in North America, they set fires for hunting purposes. And notice that nobody talks about the grassland fires. You live in Manitoba. The first community in Manitoba to get a, a municipal water supply system was Carberry, out in the Carberry Desert. And why did they have a municipal water supply system? Because they got tired of their houses being burnt down with grass fires that went through almost every summer. And so they put in sprinkler systems to be able to keep their, to save their houses. And uh, there's an entry in the Hudson Bay Company journals uh, from about 1790. And it simply says very cryptically, the Indians report the whole of the prairies are on fire. You hardly hear about grass fires anymore. And yet um, that, that was the situation uh, before Europeans arrived. And uh, fires are nature's way, as I said, of cleansing off all the debris and, dirt, uh, and, and dead material. And in forest fires, what happens is that you get two types of fire. You get what they call a crown fire which goes through and just burns off the dead debris and the new species can, can generate out of that. You also need the fire because many of the species need the heat from the fire to cause their seeds to open. Jack pine is a very good example of that in Canada. You know, you, you know that in the, in the boreal forest. And, uh, but if you don't allow the crown fires to occur, then the debris builds up in the base and you get what they call a base fire. And once a base fire takes hold, it's almost—it's very, very difficult to put it out. And it—it—it—what's it, uh, it, worse is you can appear to have it put out, leave the area, and four or five days later it pops up again because it's been burning underground. Now in Manitoba, you had precisely that happen in in Riding Mountain National Park. The Parks Canada people decided that they were going to stop forest fires in federal parks. And they kept putting out the fires uh, in, in the Riding Mountain. And then back in, and you can see the, the um, effects of this, back in about 1950 or so, a fire took a hold and they couldn't, they couldn't put it out. And it just devastated the whole Riding Mountain area. Now, the Americans uh, had, were doing better in that the American government were doing controlled fire management, which was reasonable. But then, uh, starting in about 1980, because of the environmentalists attacking them for setting fires, and because now all of the bureaucrats 
were graduates from a complete school system that had indoctrinated them into extreme environmentalism. So now all the bureaucrats are saying, yeah, you're right, we're going to stop uh, burning the forests. That caused a turnaround in the U.S. Now you see the effects of that in California, where the they fire goes through, they couldn't put it out, and, and um, uh, Gore's or, or Bush, or not Bush, Trump was absolutely correct in his assessment of that. And and uh, so it's it's actually uh, Governor Brown, who's is uh, the idiot governor of this uh, state, uh, that that's the cause of the problem. And, and so that's that's a quick summary. I noticed, by the way, California has a very unique climate type. It's what we call a Mediterranean climate because it's the same climate that you get around the Mediterranean, and that's where you get seventy percent of your precipitation is in the winter. And the summers are hot and dry. The vegetation is burned off. Then you get the lightning coming when the, the rains start to come back. You get the fires, burns off the vegetation. And now you're getting exactly what happens in, in this sequence. You're getting the mudslides in California. Well, at the same time, the fires were burning in California. They also had the fires burning in Greece because they were going, doing exactly the same nonsense. So, so this is the whole issue. If you if you don't know how the world works, and and how it functions, you're sure as heck not going to be able to manage it or deal with it properly. And almost invariably, you're going to make the situation worse. Yeah, and California is a very strange climate, very diverse, different kinds of climate from desert to, like you said, Mediterranean. Um, with carbon taxes bankrupting people in Canada uh, right now, government manipulation of markets, United Nations agendas to depopulate and grow global governance, um, what do you think is the direction of this vast so-called environmental movement going forward? Well, as, as I said, they, uh, they latched upon the environmental movement um, at, as um, a uh, high ground, moral high ground to control the world. But there was a group uh, of, of very wealthy people, and of course this is one of the things that people are struggling with, is how much of the socialism in the world, the government control, is being pushed by extremely wealthy people. George Soros is a good example. Ted Turner is another example. And uh, Ted Turner, for example, to control the agenda, put $1 billion of his own money into the UN. Of course, he gets a tax write-off for that. But he set up the Climate Foundation at the UN, and he put in charge of it, the, the chairman of the Climate Foundation, is a guy by the name of Timothy Wirth, W-I-R-T-H. Wirth had been a senator, and he's the guy that held the the conference or the, the hearings in the Senate back in 1988, at which James Hansen of NASA appeared and said, yes, I'm 99% certain that humans are causing uh, global warming and climate change. Worth then quit that and went off, as I said, took this job with the United Nations. But, but these wealthy people, uh, uh, they got together in 1968 uh, in Rome at the uh, estate of David Rockefeller. And they formed a group called the Club of Rome, and people can Google that for themselves. One of the members of the Club of Rome was Maurice Strong. And Maurice Strong was a Canadian who left school at 15. He was from Oak Lake, Manitoba, out in the southwest corner of the province. And uh, he left, uh, went to the States as a young man, ended up making a fortune in oil. And then, of course, his socialism that, that uh, developed when he was young in a part of, of Canada where the CCF were created, which then morphed into the NDP. He went to the States, made a lot of money. But as he said, I'm, I'm a, a socialist politically, but a capitalist uh, economically. And, um, and he, along with David Rockefeller and the Club of Rome, said that the world's overpopulated. And they justified that with research done in a book published by Paul Ehrlich. And Paul Ehrlich published The Population Bomb in 1972. And they said that there are too many people in the world, and each person is using up resources at an unsustainable rate. And therefore, we've got to reduce the world population. And uh, Ehrlich published a book with John Holdren, who I mentioned earlier, Obama's science are. They published a book in which they are arguing that um, with the existing constitution, you, the government can in, in, introduce 
compulsory abortions. This is how far these people were going with this. But they then said, okay, the, the, every person is using too many resources, so we want an overall reduction. But before we do that, we've got to nail the people that are using up resources faster than the others, and that's the industrialized nations. And um, Elaine Dewar, who was a, an investigative journalist for the Hamilton Spectator, she started to write a book uh, praising all of the Canadian environmentalists, like Elizabeth May and David Suzuki and Maurice Strong. And the more she researched these people, the more she discovered that they were more corrupt and manipulative and political than any of the people that they attacked. So she ended up writing uh, an exposure of them, a book called Cloak of Green. In other words, they put on the Cloak of Green, and as somebody said, they're, they're watermelons, they're red on the inside. She spent five days with Maurice Strong at the United Nations, where he had gone to um, set up the... Um, United Nations Environment Program, because he said um, uh, he said to her, uh, to Elaine Dewar, she quoted him, he said, the problem for the planet are the industrialized nations, and isn't it our responsibility to get rid of them? Well, if you ask yourself the question, well, how would you do that? How would you get rid of the industrialized nations? Well, if you think about the industrialized nation like a car, you can stop the car engine in two ways, and they're, they're very similar because they're running on fossil fuels, okay? You can shut off the, oil, the fuel supply to the engine, and it will stop. But if you do that with a country, the people are going to scream immediately. That's, that's uh, politically impossible to do. But you can also stop the car by plugging the exhaust. So if you could show that the byproduct of these fossil fuel burning industrialized nations, CO2, was causing runaway global warming, you could then use that to shut them down. And um, just to give you an idea of uh, what, um, I'm going to find the sheet here, but um, when, when uh, Dewar talked to, um, uh, to Strong, Strong at the United Nations, and she said, well, why did you use the UN? Why didn't you run for politics? He said, you can't do anything as a politician. He said, at the UN, I can get all the money I want, uh, create anything I want, hire anybody I want, control the agenda, and not be accountable to anybody. That's exactly what he did when he set up Agenda 21 and the Inter Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And, uh, and that's why I said he... When he set up the uh, IPCC, he did it through the World Meteorological Organization, which then put the bureaucrats in control of the whole thing. Yeah. And after five days with the, and I'm trying to find this piece of paper here, but after five days, oh, here we go. After five days with um, Strong at the United Nations, here's Dewar's conclusion. Strong was using the UN as a platform to sell a global environment crisis and the global governance agenda. And that was what was going on. And of course, they needed something that would threaten the whole world. And what better than global warming? The classic chicken little sky is falling. And it, it allowed them then to say, look, no one nation can deal with this. You need a world government to deal with it. And they planned in the Kyoto Protocol as they plan with the Green Climate Fund, which is the Paris Agreement. They plan, they've got a fund which will uh, set a world carbon tax and that uh, it will be collected by the IMF, the International Monetary yeah. Fund. And interestingly, uh, Maurice Strong did a lot of this uh, beginning work with Gro Harlem Brundtland, the former uh, Norwegian prime minister, who implemented, uh, the, I think, the world's first carbon tax, I do believe, uh, yeah. decades ago. Yeah, she was the prime minister of Norway and a, and a very, very strong socialist. And uh, she, yeah, she wrote a book uh, on, on the um, world in crisis and, and published that. That was also sponsored by the Club of Rome, by the way. And, and the other book that they sponsored was by uh, Dr. Meadows and his wife, and it was called Limits to Growth. And what they did was, and it was a very early, very simplistic computer model, they took most of the world's major resources and then they said, okay, here's the amount of resource we've got. Here's the rate we're using it at now. And if we project that forward, this is the date at which we're going to run out of, of the resource. And that became known as the tipping point. And we, caught, we saw that with, with oil, you know, the peak, peak uh, oil. 
And, and by the way, they're now talking about peak water. They're applying the whole th scam to water. But, but this was all orchestrated, yeah, by Strong, through the Club of Rome, through Ted Turner, and all of these very influential people that were controlling the agenda out completely outside of, of, of normal governments. Most governments had no idea what were, was going on. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this gets so extensive. We could go on for hours about it. it basically, it goes a lot. It's a lot more extensive than the media telling us that, you know, humans bad, uh, government good. And obviously, um, we like I, like I mentioned, we could go all day about this. But uh, uh, Dr. Ball, we are um, coming to the end. Can you uh, go into whatever uh, any news that you want to talk about uh, before we wrap it up? Um, just something that anything you want to talk about uh, during this video? Very quickly, uh, people are sick and tired of, of, of extremism. They're sick and tired of doom and gloom. They know there are problems in the world, but they, they, they are tired of being exploited by them. And they're starting to turn off. But the most important thing that's happened was the Trump election, not because of Trump per se, but because um, it was the final phase of the American Revolution. Rush Limbaugh says America's the last hope for freedom. He's wrong. It's the only hope for freedom. There's no other country in the world that has free speech as its number one reason for existing. And the lawsuits that I got wouldn't even have been allowed to be filed in the U.S. But, but what's happened with the Trump election was that for the first time in history and the internet, the internet allowed ordinary citizens access to information that 20 years ago, even many governments didn't have access to. And of course, that's scaring the world leaders to death because suddenly now the public know what's going on. Trump got around the mainstream media uh, by um, uh, using the internet and, and his uh, tweaks. And I just want to, uh, the mainstream media, and this is what, where we're in good uh, state, but the mainstream media have always been the power broker and the mouthpiece for the power elite. And I just want to finish by reading you a poem from 1782. Think about what's happening in America. The revolution's just occurred. America's just been established. And here's a poem from 1782. How shall I speak of thee or thy power address the god of our idolatry, the press. By thee, religion, liberty, and laws exert their influence and advance their cause. By thee, worse plagues than Pharaoh's land befell, diffused make earth the vestibule of hell. Thou fountain at which drink the good and wise, thou ever bubbling spring of endless lies. Like Eden's dead probationary tree, knowledge of good and evil is from thee. That's 1782, and Trump could have written that yesterday. And so what you're seeing is that's why they're trying to control the Internet, net neutrality, shut down Facebook, control them all, um, uh, because the power elite realize that they're losing control. And uh, the other good news is that in the polls, when they list uh, public uh, socioeconomic concerns, uh, the UN did a poll of 10 million people, listed 16 socioeconomic concerns, uh, climate change was 16th on the list of 16. The public knows something wrong. They don't know what's wrong, but they're not they're not uh, being stampeded anymore. And the next phase will be, of course, the exposure of what these people have done. Absolutely. The bread and circuses of ancient Rome are dying and they're failing. And we're seeing that in a vast loss in viewership for mainstream media, Hollywood movies, even sports. I mean, we are watching uh, something happen. And again, we don't quite know what it is yet, but we know that there's something happening. And, well, and you're, you're a part of it, Josh. What you're doing here is, is, is where people are now getting their information because uh, we've, got no, we've got nothing to gain or, or ax to grind. We're just saying, here, here's the, what's going on. And by the way, that, that's what I like. You, you present the other side they're not hearing, then you say, go home, make up your own mind. Mm -hmm. No, that's exactly it. I mean, we have to counter propaganda with people being able to challenge their views on either side, wherever they are in that uh, argument. But uh, Dr. Ball, I really appreciate you joining us today. Can you uh, tell people, our viewers, um, where they could find more of your work and support the work that you do? Yeah, I have a website. Uh, it's it's drtimball.com. That's D-R-T-I-M-B-A-L-L.com, all lowercase. And I publish articles regularly on there, about a thousand words each, and uh, you know make them understandable. Not to talk down to people, but the complex issues. And then, of course, I publish uh, pretty regularly on What's Up With That, which is one of the better climate skeptics uh, sites around. 
and and I publish uh, technocracy news, various places. But my own website uh, is the best place, and they can also get um, access to my book. Um, well, I've got a copy of it here. Um, yeah, here we go. My book, uh, Human Human Cause Global Warming: The Greatest Deception in History. And it's just 100 pages. It's done as investigative journalism. And you can see the subtitle there, who, what, where, when, why, and how they achieved what they did. Mm, absolutely. I, I definitely suggest everyone check out that book, check out his website. Um, we really appreciate you joining us today. We hope to have you back again soon. And uh, thank you very much. Thank you, and thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for watching, everyone. Make sure to check those links below. GoGetFunding.com, Patreon, subscribe star. There's multiple different ways you can help support us. We have a PayPal address. We have a Bitcoin address. We have a Cointree link with multiple different cryptocurrencies that you could donate in, if you please, including uh, Monero and multiple other privacy coins. Also, check out the Teespring link in the description for ways that you can get merchandise. And, of course, subscribe to us on Rumble at World Alternative Media. Yes, we're on BitChute, Odyssey, Rumble, Brighteon, Band.Video. But I really urge people to... Uh, go and subscribe on Rumble as they are currently beating YouTube in the App Store. So this is huge. We need to mobilize new people. We need to reach new people. So make sure to go and subscribe on there. And of course, go to our Telegram group, World Alternative Media, and our Telegram channel, World Alternative Media Announcements, and join our newsletter, www.imbanned.com. And as I said earlier, of course, you do not want to run out of energy in this control collapse of the um, energy grid, in the control collapse of the supply chain, as well as the control collapse of the economy. So make sure to check out the link below for Lion Energy in the description of this video. And if you go to that link in our description, um, you could save some money and you can get lithium batteries, solar generators, you can get power banks, you can get, you know, so solar panels. Again, this isn't about uh, trying to save the save the earth and, and, and it's not some climate change nonsense. This is about actually being prepared for when your lights go out and they try to enslave you to the Great Reset. So check out that Lion Energy link in the description, our affiliate link below. And of course, check out HeavensHarvest.com for long-term storable food that's non-GMO, uh, as well as heirloom seeds, as well as much more survival resources. Extremely important, now more than ever. The best way to fight this war, my friends, isn't with guns, isn't with violence, it's by independence. The thing that made humanity so great in the first place and unfortunately led to the weakness of the populace, go to HeavensHarvest.com and use code WAM, W-A-M, and you get free shipping in the United States on most of those products. And even if you aren't in the U.S., still use it because it helps support our operation while keeping you alive. So there's multiple different things that you guys can do and get, get prepared and get involved in. So check those links in the description, and we will see you soon. There's so much to talk about. Uh, I, I urge you guys to check those links. Also, I mean, I almost forgot the bit.ly link in the description for Tim Pachot, the Liberty Advisor. He's a certified financial planner. If you're worried about your savings, if you're worried about your um, uh, retirement funds, make sure to go and get that free initial consultation with Tim Pachot, certified financial planner who is incredibly red-pilled and just trying to keep his clients' money safe. And he's doing a better job than anyone I've seen. So make sure to check all that in the description. Live by example, always, my friends. Fight for humanity. This is Josh Sigurdsson signing out from World Alternative Media. Find the truth. Be the change.